All right, you guys uh, ready to get into the book of Colossians? Last, uh, last month we, we began to look at Colossians, and we, we did a, an overview, an introduction. I had uh, titled the sermon, it gave it an exhilarating title, An Introduction to Colossians. So now that we've done that general introduction, that general overview, oh, and if you weren't here last month, we read through the entire letter, as letters are intended to be read. So that's probably one of the best ways we can do an overview of the book. So now we're going to work our way through the text, like I said, and we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1. If you're using a blue Bible, it's on page 983, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 8. So we're going to start off by, by reading that. Read along with me. Paul writes this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love and the Spirit. So the section that we just read can be divided into two main parts. We have verses 1 and 2, which contain Paul's general introduction where he, as was customary in writing letters, he, he identifies himself, he addresses his recipients, and these are the Christians in Colossae, and he formally greets them. And then in verses 3 through 8, Paul gives thanks to God for them. And based on this, I could have simply titled this sermon, Paul's greeting to and thanksgiving for the Colossians. After all, it's exactly what we find in the text. However, I instead titled this sermon, The Power of the Gospel. Because I would suggest that that's what Paul's thanksgiving and even his formal greeting bear witness to. And we will see this as we work our way through the text. We're going to see the power of the gospel in, in this opening of his letter. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle. The term apostle basically means sent one. Sent one. It is someone who has been sent on behalf of another. It could be translated as messenger or ambassador. Here, as in most of the occurrences in the New Testament, it refers to one who had been commissioned by Christ to lifelong service as his authoritative representative. And Paul was not appointed to this office by men, but by Christ himself. And as he points out, it was, it was not according to his will. He's like, I want to be an apostle one day. What do you want to be when you grow up, Paul? An apostle? It wasn't by his will. It wasn't according to the will of other men. There wasn't some counsel that appointed him. Rather, it was according to, as he says, the will of God. 
And therefore, although the Christians at Colossae had never met Paul, remember we talked about it, they'd never seen him face to face, they never met him. He's writing them this letter. Even though they'd never met him, except for really just a few, they were to receive his instruction in this letter as instruction from Christ himself. And so are we. It's the word of the Lord. Now notice that Paul includes Timothy in his greeting. You see that? And Timothy, our brother. This doesn't mean that Timothy co-wrote the letter with Paul. You might think that. It's like, hey, Paul and Timothy were writing this together. Uh, No, Paul wrote the letter. Timothy, however, is included because he is, he really was uh, Paul's top representative. Paul's representative. So Paul's a representative of Christ. Timothy's a representative of Paul, an apostolic representative. Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. And because we know from the book of Acts, in chapter 19, that Timothy was with Paul during his three-year ministry in Ephesus, it is likely that Timothy, along with Paul, had come to know Epaphras, that man from the small town of Colossae. It's likely that Timothy, along with Paul, had a hand in ministering to Epaphras before Epaphras returned to his hometown of Colossae with the gospel. Therefore, Timothy would also have had a vested interest in God's work through the gospel in that town. A town was on his mind. He would have been praying for Epaphras and for those who would come to believe the gospel through him in Colossae. And he would have rejoiced upon hearing of the Lord's work there after several years. In fact, that is the impression that we get as we read the first part of Paul's letter. Where Paul uses the terms we and us. You see that? If you read along, you say, you'll see that he uses the terms we and us. So both Paul and Timothy share, in verses 3 through 8, they share in the thanksgiving. Verse 3 says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And both of them share in the prayer in verses 9 through 14, which we'll cover next time. And verse 9 says, we have not ceased to pray for you. It's not just Paul. Timothy is joining with him. And it's not until verse 23 in Colossians, that, that in chapter 1 of Colossians, that Paul shifts to the first person where he starts saying I, 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 because he's the one who wrote the letter. He has some things to communicate to them, but he includes Timothy in the beginning, Timothy sharing in his rejoicing of what God's doing among them and Timothy sharing in his prayers for them. So that's why he's there. Now in verse two, Paul addresses and greets the local fellowship of Christians at Colossae. And again, we, it's Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we know that when we say he wrote to the Colossians, he's not writing to people of the city of Colossae, greetings, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, it was the Christians there. He was writing to the church there. And he addresses them, these Christians in Colossae, as saints and faithful brothers in Christ. The term saints literally means holy ones or set apart ones. Those who have been set apart and holy. Through faith in Jesus Christ, they have, in other words, been set apart by God and for God. That's essentially what holy means. It communicates the idea of separation, consecration. 
And through faith in Jesus, they, they have been set apart by God and for God. They've been devoted to God. And as a result of being born again through faith in Christ, they have been, in other words, when we talk about separation, they've been separated from loving fellowship with this sinful world and brought into loving fellowship with God through Christ. That is the power of the gospel. Now, while people commonly associate the term with someone who lives an exceptionally virtuous life and performs many good deeds, that guy's a saint. He's a saint. Or St. Francis of Assisi. The church had voted to canonize him as a saint. That's usually the impression that we get when we hear the term or in modern, our modern ears get. That's not what the term, however, refers to in the Bible. So it's not someone who's known for their exceptionally virtuous life and their many good deeds that they performed. That's not why the Bible refers to people as saints. Paul does not refer to the Colossian Christians as holy because they are inherently good. Nor does he refer to them as holy because they, they do what is right and they live good lives. A lot, like all the time. Paul refers to them as holy because they believe the gospel. They believe the gospel. And as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ, they have been spiritually united with Christ, clothed with his righteousness, and set apart for his service. You see the idea of separation, being set apart? That's why they're called saints. And guess what? If you're in Christ, that's why you are a saint. I'm a saint. If you're in Christ, you are. Clothed in his righteousness, set apart for his service. One becomes a saint only by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And one remains a saint on the basis of Christ's finished work alone. So, Christians do still sin. They are forgiven, they are redeemed and forgiven sinners. God is sanctifying them. They sin along the way of their growing and their maturing in Christ. But at no point do you say, well, watch, you might lose your sainthood, brother. They might revoke your sainthood, your title as a saint. No, your remaining as a saint is continuing on because of the work of Christ alone, not in your performance. Now, as a result of God's saving grace, a saint will practice righteousness and will walk in obedience to God out of lo loving loyalty to Christ. There will be evidence. There will be righteous deeds. There will be obedience to God in that person's life. But that's a result of God's saving grace. The basis of one's sainthood is Christ's righteous work on our behalf. You never forget that. Christ's righteous work on our behalf, which has been applied to us through faith. So we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, apart from works, so that no one could boast. Paul also addresses the Colossians, you see, as faithful brothers. You see that? Saints and faithful brothers. And as a result of believing the gospel and being born again, the Colossians have not only been set apart by God and uh, set apart by God as his beloved people, but they have also been adopted by God as his beloved children. 
thus making them spiritual brothers and sisters. And Paul wrote this in his letter to the Romans, the saints in Rome. He wrote this. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And in verse 29, he writes, for those whom he, God, foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So those who are in Christ have been adopted into the family of God or brothers and sisters with one another and, and brothers and sisters of Christ, but he's the firstborn of many brothers. So what's interesting is that in Colossians, we see him, Paul saying faithful brothers. This is the only letter where Paul addresses his readers as brothers in the greeting, in his opening of his letter, in his greeting. He addresses them as brothers. It's the only letter where he does that. I mean, he refers to other Christians as brothers, but in the greeting, saints and faithful brothers. And it may be that, in light of the fact that he had never met any of them personally, he wanted to convey to them up front the familial bond and lasting fellowship that they shared with one another as a result of their faith in Christ. Never met personally, but yet he extends to them that greeting, calling them brothers, to extend that, that warmth of loving fellowship with them because they have that bond through faith in Christ. And Paul then gives the familiar Christian greeting that we see in some form in almost all the New Testament epistles following this. He says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This greeting serves really two purposes. Two purposes. First of all, it's given by the apostles to their Christian readers to serve as a reminder of the glorious reality of their salvation and of their new life in Christ. It's a reminder of that. And they began to experience this when they heard and believed the gospel. So if you are in Christ, then you are one who has been saved by grace from the wrath of God. Saved by the grace of God from the wrath of God, which you justly deserve for your sins. And, so that's grace. If you are in Christ, then you are also one who has peace now with God. You have peace with God because having the penalty for your sins paid in full by the Lord Jesus, who rose from the dead, ascended into heaven in glory and is seated at the right hand of the father and interceding on your behalf. You have received full pardon for your sins and you have been brought into a rightful, loving relationship with your creator. You have peace with God. So it's a reminder of the glorious reality of our salvation through faith in Christ and our new life in Christ, grace and peace. Not only does this greeting, however, remind us that we've been saved by grace and brought into a relationship of peace with God, thanks to the work of Christ, but it also does this. It expresses a, a prayerful desire that we continue to experience the grace and peace of God in our daily lives. That's what that greeting does. That we continue to experience the grace and peace of God in our lives as God works to conform us to the likeness of his son. 
it's a it's a it's a prayerful wish. It's a prayer for God's continued grace. And God's continued grace, guess what, is what keeps us from losing heart and empowers us to press on in faithfulness to Christ until Christ takes us into his presence. It's that continuing work of God's grace in your life. And God's continued peace is what guards our hearts and minds so that rather being, than being anxious about matters in this present life, we're able to rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul speaks of in Philippians, his letter to the Philippians. So you see that? Not only have you been saved by grace and brought into a relationship of peace with God when God saved you, when he gave you new life, he opened your eyes that you might repent and believe the gospel and place your faith in Christ. So that event, we also have this idea of his continued grace and peace in our lives that sustains us, that enables us to live lives that are worthy of him, to fight the good fight, as Paul says, to press on in faithfulness to him and to not fall away. And then in the meantime, in this fallen world, to be, have our hearts and minds guarded by that peace of God. Now let's consider the second part of the passage. So that was the introduction. That was his greeting. We have verses 3 through 8. This is Paul's and Timothy's Thanksgiving. And just looking at the first part of it, verses 3 through the first part of verse 5. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, usually we, when we give thanks, we are expressing gratitude for some kind of favor or benefit that we have received. But that's not the case here. What Paul and Timothy are thanking God for is the fact that God saved them. These men and women whom they have never met, they are thanking God that God intervened, graciously intervened and saved them. Now, Paphras had given the report to Paul and Timothy that the Colossians had believed and placed their faith in Christ. So they heard that report. And that the Colossians were continuing in their faith and demonstrating love towards their fellow Christians, which, guess what, proved that their faith was indeed genuine saving faith. Love for the, the church is evidence that faith in Christ is genuine. It's the fruit of saving faith. And for this reason, not just hearing of a profession of faith, but hearing of the reality of a, a transformed life by the grace of God through faith, evidenced by love for Christ's church, Paul and Timothy rejoiced and thanked God in their prayers. You know, sometimes we, we are desiring and eager to see people come to know the grace that we've come to know in Christ and to experience salvation, that we're eager to celebrate when we at least get some hint of a profession. But the reality is, a lot of times, people make empty professions, maybe just merely emotional professions in Christ, and they fall away. But to hear someone make a profession and then to even see or hear of the work of God, continued work of God in their life and evidence of that, there's something that we can truly and confidently rejoice in Indeed, God is working. Indeed, they are saved. And in verse 5, we see Paul point out that the Colossians' faith in Christ and love for the saints is fueled by the hope laid up for them in heaven. 
Because if you, if you look at the text, you know, he's not saying we thank God, in a sense, because of your faith and love and hope. He says we thank God since we heard of your faith and love because of the hope laid up for you. That faith and love of theirs is fueled by this hope. Now, the term hope here refers to that which Christians hope for. And usually when we talk about hope, we're talking about like the verb, I'm hoping, I hope in. But the term here is referring to the content of that hope, the thing that we are hoping for. It's the object of the Christian's hope. The thing that we look forward to and confidently expect to be fulfilled. This hope, Paul says, is laid up for the Colossians and for us in heaven. And the question is, what exactly is this hope that Paul has in mind? He said, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And he just continues on. You're like, what's the hope? What's the hope you're talking about, Paul? And if we, we look throughout the New Testament, we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul speaks of the Christian hope of salvation. In Galatians 5.5, 5, he speaks of the Christian hope of righteousness. Again, think about it. If you're in Christ, are you saved? You're saved, aren't you? But yet there's this future fulfillment, uh, full realization of that salvation. So we are saved, but we will be fully and completely in the reality of our salvation in the age to come. Are you righteous now if you're in Christ? Well, yes, because through faith in Christ, you're clothed in his righteousness. But there's still the presence of indwelling sin. But one day, we will be completely and thoroughly righteous. Right? So this is the Christian hope. In Titus, chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 7, and twice in Titus, uh, Paul's letter to Titus, he speaks of the Christian hope of eternal life. And again, I say that you currently possess eternal life. You've crossed over from death to life because of God's grace and your faith, through your faith in Christ. You've experienced that. You've received that. And yet you'll fully realize that in the future. So we see this hope of salvation, hope of righteousness, righteousness hope of eternal life. So what hope is he talking about? Is it all these things that some would say is just the totality of all these blessings that we have the Christians? So when you say Christian hope, we're referring to just all this stuff. Sure, that's good. I mean, all those things will be fulfilled. So you could say that. I think that's, that's fair. But the Christian hope that is most often spoke of, spoken of in Scripture is more concrete and more specific. You know what it is? It's the hope of glory. The hope of glory. In fact, that is the hope that Paul specifically refers to in his letter to the Colossians. If we read a little further in, in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul writes, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of, there it is, glory. And then later in his letter to the Colossians, in chapter 3, Verses 3 and 4, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So at least in Colossians, we could say that hope, if anything, is more specific, specifically referring to the Christian hope of glory. 
And when Paul speaks of Christ appearing, then you appearing with him in glory, this appearing of Christ, he's referring to what, what we would call the rapture, when Christ will appear and take his church to be with him in heaven. And this is before his second coming. So sometimes with these titles, it gets confusing because people are like, so there are two second comes in Christ. So he comes and he doesn't, and then he's coming again. So it's a third coming. We just keep it simple. He appears at this point of the rapture to take his church to be with him in heaven prior to his second coming, which is when he will return to the earth and establishes his, establish his kingdom and reign over the world in righteousness. That's the second coming. So this appearing of Christ and this hope of appearing with him in glory comes at the rapture. And Paul says in his first letter to the Thessalonians that at the rapture, the dead in Christ will rise first. And that those who are alive on the earth at this point in time when Christ appears, those who are alive will be, as Paul says, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Caught up. Rapture is the Latin word for caught up. That's where it comes from. It's in the Bible. So the dead in Christ will rise, he will appear. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we've already seen when the Lord appears, you will appear with him in glory. This is why Paul says in the Colossians, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Our glory or our glorification happens when Christ appears, he comes for his church. The Apostle John, we see this elsewhere. The Apostle John alluded to this future event in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. You see, so there's this future fulfillment. It hasn't yet appeared. This doesn't look glorious. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And how is he, by the way? He's glorious. I mean, he rose from the dead, never to die again, rose unto life, a glorified state, and ascended into heaven in glory, bodily, by the way. This isn't just some, you know, spirit floating around. Bodily, glorified body. We will be like him because we shall see him as he is when he appears. In other words, we will be glorified at the time of Christ's appearing for his church, and this is why Paul says in his letter to Titus that the blessed hope, he calls it a blessed hope, the blessed hope that Christians are waiting for is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because what's attached with that appearing? Our glorification, to be like him fully, finally. In Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul specifically points out our glorification as the outcome, as the outcome of our salvation. Romans 8, 23-25, and then a couple verses later, we read this. Paul writes, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And that, that word in is probably more accurately translated as unto. Unto this hope we were saved. It's the outcome. Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, we already read this, we'll keep reading though. He also, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we think about the image of Christ, we read the gospels, we get a sense there, but that is not the, the full conformity to his image. Because how is he now? We've already said that. He is glorious now. So even more fully conformed to the, the present image of Christ. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Hey, if you're in Christ, you've been justified. Well, what's after that? And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Guess what? Nothing follows glorified in that passage. Resurrection unto glory is, as Paul has said, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is the outcome of our salvation. It is the hope of eternal glory that Paul said in his letter to the Colossians that fueled their faith in Christ and love for his church. And this hope should affect us in the same way. The fact that eternal glory awaits us should motivate us to be faithful to Christ during the short time that we have in this world that is a passing away. The hope of eternal glory should also motivate us to love Christ's church since uh, we will all be glorified together and our fellowship will continue on in God's everlasting kingdom. If you look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ, like we're going to be hanging out for a long time. We should start working on, you know, loving each other now, right? Of course, in the kingdom, we'll have no problem with that because we won't even have the presence of sin. Praise the Lord. Paul in his letter to the Philippians testifies to the fact is I, w- I want you to see this. This isn't just something that, Gaul, uh, that Paul uh, instructs and is somehow above or whatever, doesn't practice himself. I mean, the fact that this hope of glory fuels the Christian life, his faith in Christ and love for the church. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians uh, testifying to the fact that the hope of glory motivates him to press on in faithfulness to Christ. And this is a little larger passage, but I want you to see that, that Paul is experiencing the same Uh, fueling of his faith in Christ by that very hope of glory which we all have in Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, he writes this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he's received that righteousness. It's been credited to him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And here we go. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but... And again, perfect as in perfected, glorified. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And again, just to show you, he's got his mind fixated on the coming glory. Verses 20 and 21. Our, citizens, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. And that next verse, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus, in this way, in the Lord, my beloved. The hope of glory is how you stand firm in the Lord, fixing your eyes on that prize that awaits those who are in Christ. Now back to our passage in Colossians. Look at verse 5. Paul says that the believers at Colossae heard of this hope laid up for them in heaven, this hope of glory in the word of the truth, the gospel, and he says, which has come to you. Of this you've heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. And tying everything together in verses 4 and 5, we can see that the gospel holds forth the blessing of secure and lasting hope. The gospel elicits the response of saving faith in Christ. And the gospel produces the work of spirit-empowered love. That's the power of the gospel. And picking up in verse 6, Paul speaks of more of the gospel's activity. He says that in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. The gospel that came to the Colossians in their small town, insignificant town, little like one gas station town, just drive by, who cares? The gospel that had come to them in their small town and that they believed was the same gospel that was having an impact throughout the world. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And through it, God was and is calling out of darkness individuals from every tribe and language and people and nation to be a people for his own possession. He was continuing to save individuals throughout the vast expanse of the Roman Empire and empowering them to live righteous lives as he was also doing right there in that small town of Colossae, as he is also doing right here in the city of Fontana and its neighboring communities, as he is also doing throughout the world today. It's the same gospel. This powerful truth, word of truth, this powerful message, and again, when we get later in the letter, we realize that there's some false teaching going on in Colossae, that teachers are trying to appeal to them and uh, you know, self-appointed uh, authorities saying that they have some kind of higher knowledge. You know, they, kinda, they, need to, they want to persuade them to supplement their faith in Christ. And they have some kind of message for them of a better way. But this message is just some kind of small, cult-like, isolated thing that is for the select few. And Paul's speaking of this global gospel. Clearly, it's evident that this is the power of God. So it is a deterrent, you could say, against that uh, susceptibility to false teaching. This saving and sanctifying work of God, and he talks about the gospel-bearing fruit and increasing, it begins in the life of any individual in the same way 
Paul said it began with the Colossian believers. When that person hears and understands the grace of God in truth, that's what he says in verse 6. They heard and understood the grace of God in truth, and in other words, when that person hears the gospel and completely understands the gift of God's saving grace offered through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. And to understand the grace of God in truth means to understand the grace of God that is held forth in the gospel as it truly is. To understand it truly. What is this grace of God? It is his unearned and undeserved favor. God offers to all who believe his free gift of righteousness that comes through faith alone and Christ alone. It is by grace that's anyone, that anyone's saved, right? It's the grace of God, that he, by the grace of God, that he saves people. It is apart from works that no one can boast, as Paul writes in Ephesians. So, in other words, that so no one can take credit or even partial credit in their salvation. God gets all the glory. And so when the, the Colossians hear the word of truth, the gospel, and he says that they heard and completely understood the grace of God as it truly is. Well, that's a sign that they truly believed. And that is saving faith. And the problem at Colossae, like we said, was that certain false teachers were seeking to persuade the church's members that they needed to supplement their faith with religious rituals and regulations. In other words, they were arguing that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is not enough in order to maintain God's favor. That can't be it. That's too, that's like too simple. That's too kind of God to extend grace to you like that and to have it not depend on your performance at all? Are you kidding me? So these false teachers make their appeal. Come on, you need some rituals and regulations to be more spiritual. To attain some higher level of spirituality and closeness to God, you need these, these traditions, regulations. However, here's the truth. Take away grace and what do you have? You don't have the gospel. You take away grace and you don't have truth. You take away grace and you don't have forgiveness of sins and salvation from the wrath of God. Then of the final two verses we see in verses 7 and 8, Paul commends Epaphras to the church at Colossae. He speaks of this grace of God and truth and he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You see, Epaphras not only proclaimed the gospel to them, he also gave them sufficient instruction in the gospel. He said they learned it from him. He gave them instruction in the gospel so that they would truly and completely understand the grace of God. And that word, understand there, the grace of God and truth, understand it means completely, through and through, you understood the grace of God and truth. How did they get there? Because Epaphras instructed them. He taught them. So they would completely understand. They wouldn't miss the truth of the gospel. Not just you know, a quick recitation of, of a, a short, truncated version of the gospel. He instructed them in these glorious truths that are contained in the gospel message so they would fully understand the grace of God. He was a faithful minister of Christ on their behalf, not only because he brought the gospel to them, but as you'll remember from last time, he made the 1,300-mile journey all the way to Rome, in order to inform the Apostle Paul 
of God's work among them. He did that on their behalf. And, and he did this to also to seek the apostles' counsel and direction regarding the false teacher situation that they were faced with. And we, along with the Colossians, well, we should definitely be grateful for Epaphras. We should thank God for him as well, because without his faithful work, guess what? We would most likely have no letter from the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. This glorious letter with rich truths concerning the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and who he is, creator of all things. And some closing thoughts on what we can learn briefly on when we read Paul's Thanksgiving. And you'll see this in his other letters. I encourage you to just maybe read through the, the beginning of his letters and see what he thanks God for. First of all, he, the content of his thanksgiving, he is grateful to God for God's work in others. He's not just thankful to, for God's provision, which is what we do a lot, right? I just want to praise the Lord for providing, for giving me stuff, for providing and you know, helping me out materially, and, or at least you know, making me feel better, or helping me get over my sickness. I mean, the stuff that he's giving. Again, we thank God for his provision, absolutely, but Paul's focus is always on God's sanctifying work in the lives of others which he's still sanctifying you when you're sick. You know, he's not, that's not on hold. So. so he's thankful for God's work in the lives of others, his sanctifying work that's demonstrated by their continued faith in the truth of gospel, their continued growth and their knowledge of and obedience to the word of God. These are the things we can be thankful for when we hear that God's doing in the lives of others. Uh, loving acts of kindness and service towards others in the body of Christ. Thank God for these people. Because I can see that they're growing in their knowledge of the scripture, of God's word. And I can see the, the evidence of their increasing faith in Christ because they are sacrificially serving one another in these ways. You, know, you see what I'm saying? We learn from the content of Paul's thanksgiving and one more, the effect of his thanksgiving. Paul's thanksgiving is an encouragement. I mean, he starts his letters out this way. It's an encouragement to those he's writing to in their spiritual walk, because it shows that he doesn't only focus on the negatives. While he's faithful to instruct and correct and rebuke when necessary as an act of Christian love and out of his duty as an apostle, he also makes a very intentional point to acknowledge and draw attention to evidence of God's continued grace in the lives of the Christians he's writing to. So we can learn from that to, to remember that we need to remember that we are all saved by grace. We're standing in grace, continuing grace. So we don't want to shift over and say, let me point out all the, the sin issues I see with you, brother, because I care. How about back it up a little bit and say, thank God for these evidences of his grace in your life. And hey, we can talk about some things to help each other along, to grow in our holiness, to grow in our sanctification. But encourage people. By thanking God and, you know, letting them know that you're thanking God for his work in their life. So don't be looking for those specks. Speck, 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 speck. I got a lot of specks. I got some planks too, sure, you know. So there's things that we need to focus on in ourselves. And we need to help each other along and love, continuing the grace of God. So that's, that's Paul's greeting. That's his thanksgiving in his letter. And next time we're going to... We're going to look and unpack at, look at and unpack his prayer for the Colossians. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And I, Lord, I, I do thank you for this church. And we, we've, we've expressed our gratitude throughout this morning and, and just your work 
among the people here. And, and Lord, we, we see this on a corporate level. We see the evidences of your grace. We do see people in our, our fellowship continuing and, and growing in their, their knowledge of the scriptures and their hunger for and love for your word. And we see our people serving one another in sometimes very uh, simple ways and other times in very sacrificial ways. But Lord, just doing those things with an attitude of, of joyfulness and love for one another. And, and Lord, we pray that these things that you desire to see in us and these things that, that Paul is always so grateful to see regarding your work in the lives of believers, Lord, that, that those, those kinds of things we would see more and more and we would focus on and, and strive for, that we'd increase in our, our knowledge of your word and our hunger for your word and our uh, conformity to the likeness of your son. We increase in our love for one another, our unity in the faith. Lord, help us to continue on and persevere as a local body to be strengthened by the ever-present reality of your saving grace in our lives. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your powerful gospel that is still having its effects in in our, our continued daily lives. And Lord, we just pray for your blessing on this body. In Jesus' name, amen.